We will share this recording on our website, youreyes.org, and via email. Again, all of the recordings of this event and previous events from town halls are available at y-o-u-r-e-y-e-s.org. These recordings have timestamps for you to navigate the speakers and topics that interest you. All right. Good morning, everyone. And thank you again for joining us on today's town hall. I have just a couple announcements before we get started. Uh, first and foremost, our next town hall is going to be Wednesday, October 20th at 11 a.m. So mark your calendars. It's the third Wednesday at 11 a.m. And we are happy and excited to have Metro Access the Washington uh, Transit Authority's Accessible Rideshare Program coming to give us updates both on the program and on travel training. In addition, we have a couple events coming up in the next couple weeks to share. This Friday, we will have another Zoom presentation on audio description and the audio description project. This is a great accessible option for those of you who have trouble viewing um, visual components of television, movies, and even the theater. Audio description is a way to make this accessible and enjoyable for everyone. On Sunday, September 26th at 12.30 p.m., the Friendship Heights Village, uh, with coordination with POB, is putting on a great service for Mrs. Janet Morrison. This is now virtual. It was originally marketed as in person. However, with the changes in the Delta variant going on, we have moved it to virtual. So, so to sign up, you can call our hotline and we will provide you with Friendship Heights Zoom information so you can join. Finally, our third annual Low Vision Symposium is scheduled for Saturday, October 9th at 12 p.m. This symposium is a great opportunity for those of you who want to learn about devices and vendors and aids, excuse me, not vendors, uh, for devices and aids to learn about from the vendors and ask your questions. This is a really great opportunity and also doctors will be on as well. So bring your questions and come prepared to learn. If you or someone you know would like to be added to our newsletter mailing list, you can give our hotline a call at 301 951-4444 or email us at events at youreyes.org. This is also how you can receive Zoom information for these upcoming events. Our Low Vision Learning Center is now open. Yes, the physical location. On Thursdays and Fridays from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m., you can schedule an appointment to come visit us, learn about the technologies, and work with our resource navigators one-on-one -on -one to find solutions to our different issues. Our resource guidebook, Your Eyes and Low Vision, is still available. It's available both in large print paperback on our website in youreyes.org. And you can contact our Low Vision team to sign up for one. Again, our hotline is 301-951-4444. And we welcome you to share this information with anyone who may be interested, including your loved ones, community centers, and even doctor's offices. 
Finally, we've made it even easier for you to listen to our recordings. We can, you can find our town hall calls on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. You can even ask your Alexa to play recordings with just your voice. So if you have an Alexa-enabled device, you can just say, Alexa, play Prevention of Blindness Society of Metropolitan Washington podcast. Give it a shot if you have an Alexa, or you can give our Low Vision Learning Center a call for assistance. Now on to our program. Today's topic is... Sorry, it appears some, I got muted. Uh, so today's topic is healthy aging in your eyes. And we're gonna hear about the aging eye conditions and ways that you can prevent or slow vision loss. While many of us on this call may have already lost some significant levels of sight, there's still many ways that you can preserve your remaining sight and prevent other serious issues from occurring. And we're honored to have a special guest, Dr. Howard Weiss. Now, Dr. Weiss is a highly skilled cataract and glaucoma specialist at Washington Eye Physicians and Surgeons. A seven-time Washingtonian Magazine top doctor, Dr. Weiss completed his undergraduate work at Yale, his medical degree in ophthalmology residency at Tufts University in Boston, and his glaucoma fellowship at Harvard. Dr. Weiss has several academic appointments, including but not limited to Walter Reed, Washington Hospital Center, and Georgetown University. He's a fellow of the American Academy of Ophthalmology and member of the American Glaucoma Society and Washington Academy of Ophthalmology. Dr. Weiss has over 20 publications in peer-reviewed literature and over 80 lectures at academic institutions. Dr. Weiss is in fact so well regarded by his peers that his patients include other doctors, including ophthalmologists. Now, one degree I've not yet mentioned is his master's in public health from Harvard. Someone with an MPH has the knowledge, skills, and passion to protect and improve the health of entire populations. This means engaging with the community and tackling the unique and challenging issues each population has. And Dr. Weiss is very engaged in the community. He regularly presents at community events like today. It takes time to engage with his patients and volunteers his free time towards serving his population. So Dr. Weiss, Thank you so much for your time today, and I pass the mic off to you. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Great. Uh, so uh, I want to thank you, Sean. Uh, uh, Sean is the Senior Programs Manager at Prevention of Blindness. And I want to thank Nick for, uh, for getting this all together. And I also want to thank uh, Karen Forston, uh, the Director of Prevention of Blindness. And I'd like to dedicate today's meeting, our visit today, uh, to the memory of Janet Morrison, uh, who is a very special person uh, in my life and in the life of the Prevention of Blindness Society of the metropolitan DC area. Uh, Janet uh, was probably single-handedly responsible for more uh, people learning more things about their eyes and uh, helped so many folks in so many ways. Uh, I'm gonna talk for about 20 to 30 minutes and then I'm gonna take questions for probably the same amount of time, more or less, depending on, on you guys. Um, so we'll probably wrap up sometime uh, around noontime, give or take a few minutes. Um, and uh, anything goes. So I'm happy to take any questions. So save your questions for the question and answer period, but I'll be happy to take pretty much any question that you can come up with then. 
so let's talk about healthy aging and the eye. And uh, the first thing that I'll say uh, is that uh, healthy aging uh, does require eye exams because the eye is one of those parts of the body that can develop problems before that's evident to the individual. So uh, you probably heard that most medical conditions are easier to treat early. And that's true with the eye also, but because only the central part of the eye is for vision and the side of the eye and the edges of the eye are for support. Uh, if an eye doctor can detect a problem uh, before it's affecting your vision, when it's only affecting the supporting part of the eye, uh, we can oftentimes intervene uh, before you have any symptoms and uh, intervene in an easier way, a way that's easier for you and us. Uh, uh, and that requires a regular eye exam. Uh, so, you know, the best thing I can tell a patient at the time of a regular eye exam is everything's fine and nothing to do, just come back in a couple of years, uh, in a year or two. But the second best thing I can say is, you know, I've detected something today that doesn't appear to be affecting your function. And if we intervene in a simple way, uh, we should probably be able to keep it that way for a long time to come. So that's the, uh, that's the reason why we want you to have a regular eye exam. So uh, I think I'm probably preaching to the choir, but if, you, if uh, anybody out there hasn't had an eye exam in several years, then it would be a good thing to do now. And uh, the basic rule of having an eye exam once a year is a good rule uh, after, uh, after age 60 to have an exam once a year. Uh, and uh, uh, your doctor might tell you, you know, everything's fine, you can come back in two years, in which case that's reasonable. And uh, uh, on the other hand, the doctor might say that we need to see you in six months or, or sooner, whatever. So uh, uh, I just wanna make sure we all understand the importance of a regular eye exam. And as you understand, uh, today is not a substitute for that. Today is general information so you can all know a little bit more about what's going on. So let's move on to normal aging. So these are normal things that happen to pretty much most people. That's gonna be the first category I'm gonna talk about. And then I'm gonna talk about some less common things that happen to fewer people. But what's one of the most normal things that happens to people as the years grow by? And I bet y'all know this, it's eyeglasses. So of course, uh, we call it a re refractive error. A refraction refers to how uh, light bends when it goes through a medium, such as the front of the eyeball, which is the cornea, or an eyeglass for that matter. So a refractive error is nearsightedness, which is a long eye that requires a lens to focus the rays of light properly in the back of the eye. Uh, nearsighted folks can see at near without glasses. They can see at near and that's a nice thing, but they can't see far away and they need glasses for driving and TV and sports. And uh, the opposite of nearsightedness, which is a long eye is farsightedness. And farsightedness is a short eye. And a short eye also requires uh, uh, glasses to see. Uh, of course, a farsighted person needs glasses to see at near, for sure. And many of them also need glasses to see at far, but it's a weaker glass than what they need to see at near, so we call that farsighted. And people can be nearsighted or farsighted at any age. Uh, and they can have astigmatism, which means the eye is not shaped like a basketball, but is shaped more like a football. 
So with astigmatism, that causes blurring at all distances. Uh, you know, if you have a basketball and you bounce it on the ground, it comes right back up to you. But if you have a football and you bounce it on the ground, it goes all over the place, uh, hither and thither, as they say. And uh, that's what happens to rays of light that go in an eye that has astigmatism. Uh, so astigmatism uh, blurs vision near and far and requires glasses near and far. Uh, and then the last categories, we've talked about nearsightedness, the long eye, and farsightedness, the short eye, and astigmatism, the misshapen eye, which is the football-shaped eye. And then the last category, which maybe is more appropriate for a talk on normal aging, because these other things can happen at any age. But with normal aging, the fourth category of eyeglass problem occurs, and that's called presbyopia. And uh, presbyopia means an, an elderly eye, an older eye. And what happens with time is that the lens inside the eye is no longer flexible. In youth uh, and through uh, early mid age, the lens of the eye is flexible and can focus both near and uh, in a normal eye uh, has some degree of focus power. So you can focus far away and you can focus up close. That changes sometime after age 40 and pretty much everybody. And at that point, a person who's been able to see well their whole life now needs reading glasses. And uh, reading glasses are sold over the counter at the drugstore for good reason. Pretty much everybody needs them. So I call that normal aging when a person needs uh, reading glasses. Uh, uh, one of the biggest impediments to good vision in my office is glasses that are not clean. And uh, it sounds like such a simple thing, but uh, many of you I see out there are wearing glasses and uh, it's great if you just put them on and leave them on all day, but it's amazing how glasses get fingerprints and a little grease and a little smudge here and there. And the way that I like to clean eyeglasses is with uh, warm tap water. I first wash my hands and then I take a drop of liquid dishwashing soap you know, Palm Olive or Dial or whatever the store brand is, but liquid dishwashing soap. And I put a drop on each lens and then I run it under the warm water and with my, my clean fingers, I clean the lenses. And, uh, and then I pat the lens dry with a, uh, a cloth towel, which is clean, a clean cloth towel. Now I know that eyeglass shops uh, oftentimes give you a little towel, that's fine. What you want to make sure is that the towel is clean and that if you're polishing the lenses that you don't have a little piece of grit in there because you can polish a little scratch right into the lens by polishing the lens. That's why I prefer to dry the glasses uh, with a patting technique. What a simple thing I've talked about so far. I bet you all know that already, but sometimes simple lessons are the best ones. So I wanted to include that today. Uh, I just want to take a break for a minute can everybody hear me okay? Uh, yes. Good, okay. Um, so uh, let's go on and talk about a, cat a problem that many of you know about, uh, which is cataract. And uh, on my way to talking about cataract, I wanna give you a little anatomy lesson. I brought my friend, uh, the eyeball here. And uh, uh, it's hard to do audiovisual over, over Zoom, but I think this will work. And uh, this is a, a model of a human eyeball, about as big as my head here. 
And I'm going to open it up because we can do that with a model. And uh, inside, you can see that there's a front and a back. And we eye doctors, we examine the eye from the front to the back. Right? When you want to do something right, you have a little order and a system. So I already talked about the glasses, which go in front of the eyeball. I'm going to talk, uh, I just want to show you there's the cornea, which is the clear window at the front of the eye, like the, like the watch crystal on your, eye, on your wristwatch. Behind that is the iris, which is uh, colored, blue or brown, uh, mine are brown. And uh, 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 that's the uh, iris, which is, acts like the aperture on a camera to open wide to let more light in in the dark and to close up small in the bright sunlight so that you're not blinded by the light. Behind that is the lens. We're gonna talk about the lens in just a minute. The lens is clear at birth and gets cloudy over time. Now we're talking about, so far I've just talked about this much. The big area in the back of the eye is filled with a clear gel called the vitreous gel. And uh, uh, it uh, doesn't have any blood vessels in it. It's just clear so you can see through it. And there's some proteins in it. And uh, we'll talk about that a little while. And then the lining in the back of the eye, like the film in the camera, is called the retina. And we'll talk about that. And then the nerve, which carries the vision from the eye to the brain, is the uh, optic nerve. And, uh, uh, and we'll talk about that. So going from front to back, we have the cornea, this little fluid filled space in between the cornea and the lens, which is the front of the eye, the iris, which is the colored part of the eye, then the lens, then this big space of vitreous, clear vitreous gel, the retina lining the back of the eye like film in the camera, and then the nerve that carries the vision to the brain. Okay, so let's talk about the lens. The lens is clear at birth and it's clear through the first decades of life. And uh, this is just like the uh, clear part of an egg, we call it the white of an egg. So why is it when we open up the egg, it's clear, it's not white. The shell might be white or, or brown, but inside there's a yellow part and, a, and, and it's not a white part, it's a clear part. Well, the white of an egg is clear when it's uncooked. So too is the lens of the eyeball. These are both, both the white of an egg and the lens of the eyeball are made of protein. And like the white of the egg changes from being clear to being opaque and white when it's cooked, so too the lens of the eye changes from being clear to being a little cloudy and then a little more cloudy and then downright milky and frankly white as it slowly, I guess cooks would be a, a reasonable analogy uh, at body temperature over the decades of life. So sometime between age four, 30 to 40, the lens starts to take on a little bit of a cloudiness and sometime between age 50 and 60, it's more detectable uh, to a doctor examining the eye. And sometime at varying ages, sometimes at 50 to 60 and more commonly in seven, at age 70 to 80, 
the lens of the eye becomes so cloudy uh, that it blurs vision. This is not just common, this is what we call normal aging, sort of like gray hair. There are a few folks out there who don't get gray hair, but almost everybody does. And there are a few people who are uh, able to function fine with a mild cataract, and they certainly don't need cataract surgery if they're functioning fine. Uh, one of the ways that you can prevent and slow down the development of cataract is by uh, wearing glasses that block ultraviolet rays. Pretty much any pair of prescription eyeglasses block ultraviolet rays. It's built into almost every pair of prescription glasses. And most uh, sunglasses that are anything other than the lowest level of sunglass uh, have a quality that blocks ultraviolet rays. Uh, so uh, blocking ultraviolet rays is one way that's been proven. Uh, and if you don't wear sunglasses or you just don't like to wear sunglasses, a broad brimmed hat can also contribute to blocking sunlight uh, that can cause uh, cataracts to develop quicker. Uh, this study was done right here uh, locally in Maryland with Chesapeake Bay fishermen. Uh, some smart doctors uh, gathered a bunch of fishermen and asked them and, uh, who wears glasses and who wears a hat and who doesn't and examine them for cataract. And they found that wearing glasses or a broad brimmed hat uh, protected from cataract development. Other ways you can prevent cataracts or slow down the development is by avoiding smoking. Because we know that smoke speeds the rate of cataract development. And um, uh, it's a very small leap from firsthand smoke to secondhand smoke. Uh, so living in a smoky or residing, uh, working in a smoky office or residing in a smoky home can also contribute towards cataract developing uh, more quickly. And finally, managing hypertension and diabetes are other ways to try to prevent uh, cataract. The uh, treatment from cataract is, uh, is surgical. It is to remove the cloudy lens and put a clear lens in its place. Now, that's not just for any cataract, that's for a visually significant cataract. So early on, a person has a little cataract Maybe it changes their eyeglass prescription and they get a new eyeglass and they see fine. Well, that's great. That's all they need to do. Even with moderate cataract, if a person's vision is adequate for their needs with an eyeglass or without an eyeglass, then they can live with their cataract. The decision to have a cataract procedure, a cataract surgery, is a decision that's made with, in discussion between patient and doctor. So the, it depends on a couple of things. The first is the patient has to have a visual complaint. If the patient says their vision's fine, well, they don't need cataract surgery. Cataract surgery is done to improve a patient's vision. And if the vision's fine, that patient does not need cataract surgery. Then the doctor examines the patient. So if, let's say the patient does have a visual complaint and they can't fix it with eyeglasses, then the doctor examines the patient. If they see what is a visually significant cataract that's consistent with the patient's report and the patient's vision, uh, then they'll talk about cataract surgery. So the decision to uh, determine that the cataract is ripe for removal 
is made as much by the doctor looking at the eye as made even more by not what the doctor sees when he looks at the eye, but what he hears when he listens to the patient. I wanna say that again, because that's important. The decision to proceed with cataract surgery is made partially on what the doctor sees when he looks at the patient with the microscope in the exam, but it's made mostly based on what the doctor hears when he listens to the patient. So if you're uh, contemplating cataract surgery, you wanna be confident that your doctor has heard you and that you've heard the doctor and that you have a complaint and that the doctor hasn't been able to solve your complaint by simple means like an eyeglass. And so you're gonna go ahead and have cataract surgery. Once the decision is made to have cataract surgery, and that would be made again, just to repeat one more time, because vision is inadequate for a person's needs despite the best possible glasses. So once the decision is made to proceed with cataract surgery, the doctor will discuss several decisions with the patient decisions that need to be made with the patient's input. Uh, in my office, I provide a patient with a questionnaire and I use the information from the questionnaire to guide my discussion. So sometimes it's a simple discussion and sometimes it takes a little while. But uh, there are three main decisions that a person makes when they have cataract surgery. The first decision is which type of lens to use. There are three types of lens implants available and I'm showing you here, them here to you on the screen. And uh, I would do this right here in my office. The first lens is a basic lens and it does a fine job fixing the cataract. It's clear as opposed to cloudy, which is so when we take out the cloudy lens and put in a clear lens, that helps the person see better. And then the person would be expected to need new eyeglasses that they would get several weeks after the surgery. And that's when the vision would be better. The other two lenses, are refractive lenses. Remember the word refraction that had to do with eyeglasses. So these two lenses are for people who wanna achieve not only better vision, but also in addition, they wanna reduce their need for glasses after surgery. And uh, this, these would depend on patient preference, not doctor preference, but this would have to do with the patient's preference for their visual lifestyle regarding whether they're wearing glasses a little bit more or a little bit less. And this is a decision that's made on a personalized basis in discussion with the doctor. So uh, the first decision that's made is what type of lens implant to use. The second of the three decisions that are made is what technique is used. There are two techniques that are used in cataract surgery today, and they both have equally successful results. One technique is the simply sonar technique. And the other technique is the laser assisted sonar technique. They have equally good results. The laser assisted sonar technique is two steps, laser, then sonar. So it takes a little bit longer than the one step simply sonar technique. The when the laser is used, it's only takes about four or five minutes. Uh, and during that time, the laser is actually sitting on the patient's eyeball or docked carefully in position, touching the patient's eyeball. And that can be a, a little unpleasant, but it's not painful. 
Uh, it can also irritate the eye a little bit because it is in contact with the eyeball. These are two steps that are not taken in the simply sonars technique. Finally, when a laser makes an incision, it makes the incision by ablating or removing tissue. Think of a mail slot in your doorway. There's actually a gap where the mail can go in. In contrast, when a, an incision is made with a blade or a scalpel, the blade or scalpel pushes the tissue apart and preserves the tissue. Uh, there's no gap, even on a microscopic level. Uh, for this reason, the laser incision doesn't come together quite as perfectly as the uh, incision that's made with the Simply Sonar technique, which does utilize a scalpel. Uh, so much so that some doctors who use the laser for some steps do not use it for the incision. Uh, finally, there's an out-of-pocket cost to use the laser that a person does not incur with the Simply Sonar technique. So for the reasons I've enumerated, I almost always recommend the Simply Sonar technique because it's quicker, more comfortable, less irritating, uh, less costly, and makes a better seal. Now you can discuss this with your own doctor and you may hear some other, other uh, advice, but I've given, what I'm telling you is my opinion and what I've found to be the case in my practice. Um, my colleagues and I do own a laser. We went to the bank and borrowed a lot of money to buy it. And I learned how to use it and I got very good at it. And then I realized that it was no better for my patients than the Simply Sonar technique that I've been doing prior to that. Um, both techniques are modern techniques. Uh, the laser assisted technique is more recently developed. They both have good results. Um, and in the course of my uh, learning to use the laser assisted technique, which I've gotten got very good at at one point, I had many patients who had one eye done one way and one eye done the other way. They all universally said that the Simply Sonar technique was quicker, more comfortable, less irritating, obviously less costly. And um, I found that it gave a much better seal at the end of the operation. So uh, that's why I recommend the Simply Sonar technique for my patients, uh, almost always. There are some exceptions. Then the, I've talked about three decisions. The first is which type of lens implant. The second is the technique. And the third decision has to do with an extra measurement that uh, can be taken in the operating room. So we take lots of measurements in ophthalmology. And prior to cataract surgery, the measurements help to determine what power of which lens implant will be best for the patient. And even with the basic lens implant, um, if a patient has a desire to see a little better far or a little better near or some specific request having to do with eyeglasses afterwards, then there's a measurement we can take in the operating room after first removing the cloudy lens from the eye. So the measurements in the office are all made through the cloudy lens. But in the operating room, we can take an additional measurement after first removing the cloudy lens. It takes about 30 seconds in the operating room and it gives an extra measure of confidence that the lens we're putting in the eye is the best lens for the patient, for that individual patient. Uh, if a patient has just no, no, doesn't care whatsoever about glasses, then that, just, that measurement is not needed. 
Um, so that's, that's uh, the decisions the patient makes regarding cataract surgery. Uh, with cataract surgery, uh, typically a person uses eye drops for a few days before and a few weeks after. Uh, typically they refrain from food on the morning of the surgery. Uh, they are sedated during the operation by an anesthesiologist who gives the medicine to be, so that they're safe and comfortable. Uh, safety means they're not moving around. Comfort means that they're at ease. Uh, many patients sleep through the procedure, which takes 10 to 15 minutes. A lot of preparation, but the actual surgery itself takes 10 to 15 minutes. And then a person goes home and takes a nap, and then they come back to the doctor's office the following day, typically, and then again a few weeks later. Uh, so that's what I wanted to tell you about cataracts and cataract surgery. Again, the way we prevent it is by wearing ultraviolet blocking glasses or a broad-brimmed hat, avoiding smoking, and managing hypertension and diabetes. All right, I wanna move on to another, another topic. And uh, another topic which we see in normal aging is a dry eye. So the eye is supposed to be covered by a layer of moisture, like a lake of tears. A lake of tears is supposed to cover the surface of the eye. And that lake of tears is spread out about a dozen times a minute when you blink. If there was a puddle of water on the floor, and you didn't want it to evaporate, you might think to spray the surface with oil because oil doesn't evaporate as fast as water. Well, Mother Nature thinks that way. And so Mother Nature makes our tear film with several layers. The outer layer is an oil layer that's made by the uh, eyelid. And sometimes the eyelid, which is the windshield wiper of the eye, uh, sometimes the eyelid gets gunked up just like a windshield wiper. And uh, you, if, it, if your eyelid were a windshield wiper, you'd take a rag and you go and you'd wipe it and it'd be nice and clean. But we can't do that to the eyelid. So what we can do for the eyelids is we can use warm compresses, which is a clean face cloth with warm tap water held up against your closed eye for a few minutes. Uh, and we can gently clean the eye that way. There are prepackaged wipes at the pharmacy that are sold that can be used uh, equally well. Uh, there are other ways you can apply warmth to the eye. There are uh, to, uh, and the warmth uh, helps these oils to flow properly because sometimes the oils dry up into waxy deposits on the eyelid and then the surface of the eye is not covered by oils and the water evaporates and the eye feels dry, gritty, sandy, scratchy, blurry, oftentimes later in the day when the eyes are tired. So, uh, Good ways to manage that are with warm compresses or over-the-counter ophthalmic lubricants, drops or ointments that can help, or gels that can help the eye be more comfortable. There are also medications, and then there are procedures we can do in the office, uh, including placing little tiny microscopic plugs in the drain to keep the tears that you do make on the surface of the eye for a longer time. Uh, sort of like raising the level of water in a dam. Uh, we can put little plugs in the tear drain. We also have a device that helps to uh, uh, warm with warmth and massage to help get the glands that make the oil layer to function better. And that's a wonderful soothing treatment that we offer in, our, in the office. Uh, all in an attempt to help a person's eye be more moist and be covered with a 
normal, healthy lake of tears. Uh, so dryness is what we call part of normal aging. It's not a great thing, but it's a manageable thing. And, that's, uh, and it's so common that many of these treatments are sold over the counter, such as lubricant drops uh, and such. So we've talked so far about uh, dryness on the surface of the eye. And a little further into the eye, we talked about normal health. Normal aging involves cataract development. And then we talked about the vitreous gel in the back of the eye, which is clear throughout life. However, there's something that happens in the vitreous in normal aging. And that is the development of floaters. And again, almost always, almost everybody develops a floater or, or two or three over time. This protein uh, that fills this back of the eye has a lining called the vitreous membrane. The vitreous is this space, it's filled with the vitreous gel and the vitreous membrane lines the back of the eye. Over time, the vitreous gel turns more to liquid and the membrane, which is a protein membrane, detaches from the back of the eye. Now this is not a retinal detachment, this is a vitreous detachment. The retina is another layer further back. The vitreous membrane detaches in almost everybody. And when it does, little pieces of the protein membrane float around inside the back of the eye. And we call these floaters. And people uh, see these as little specks in their vision. And they typically do move and float around. And oftentimes they settle into the side of the eye, the side of the eye where they're not visible. And if they settle down where they're not visible, then a person doesn't see them anymore. Other times they don't move out of the, they, they get lodged in the central area of vision and a person continues to see them long-term. However, even in that case, they usually become less bothersome over time. First of all, because they're usually small, and second of all, I guess you just get used to it. Like living next door to the train station, you don't notice the whistle as often. And uh, that's the same thing that might happen to most folks who have a vitreous floater lodged in their vision. Now, when a vitreous floater develops, it happens, that happens when the vitreous membrane pulls away from the back of the eye and pulls away from the retina. The retina is the film in the camera and uh, it sometimes gets stimulated when the vitreous membrane pulls away and that can cause flashing lights. So if a person sees a new vitreous floater or new flashing lights, we like them to come into the office because we want to make sure that the retina is not bothered and that there's no tear, break or hole in the retina. A tear, break or hole, while usually self-limited, can sometimes go on to a retinal detachment and we would like to avoid that. So if we see a new tear break or hole, we use a laser to tack it down and prevent a retinal detachment. And of course, if the retina detaches, uh, that is also fixable. But again, we like to prevent things. Uh, a retinal detachment is a bigger deal than a tear break or hole, which is a bigger deal than just a floater. So if a person develops a new vitreous floater, or has flashing lights, that's a reason to call the eye doctor and get in for an exam promptly. So we just talked about a third part of normal aging. 
which is the development of vitreous floaters. We talked about dryness, cloudy lenses, the cataract, and the vitreous floater. I'm going to move along and talk about a couple of uh, conditions which are not really part of normal aging, but are common and um, that I thought would be uh, you all be interested in hearing about. Uh, the first one that I want to go on and talk about is glaucoma. So the eyeball is a ball and it is inflated. And there is a pressure that inflates the eyeball. And just like you can't drive if you have a flat tire. And if you've ever tried to play ball and there's no air in the ball or it's a collapsed ball, it doesn't work so well. Doesn't matter what the game is. It's basketball or football or tennis. If the ball is, doesn't work, uh, if the ball is not inflated properly, you can't play the game. So there is a pressure in the eye that inflates the eyeball. And that pressure is created by the uh, fluid that flows into the eye to nourish the eye and the fluid that flows out of the eye to carry waste products away. There's a circulation and a pressure that's created by the flow of these fluids. In glaucoma, there is damage to the nerve in the back of the eye that is associated with high pressure in the eye. This high pressure is not created by an excess of fluid flowing into the eye. It's created by a problem with the drain of the eye. Not enough fluid drains out properly, leading the fluid to back up and raise the pressure in the eye. Now, every nerve has a different level of sensitivity, but there's some pressure that's too high for pretty much every nerve. And then there's some nerves that are a little more sensitive even to average pressures. But in almost every case, by reducing the eye pressure, we can make life more pleasant for the nerve in the back of the eye. So the nerve continues to function well and the vision remains good. If the pressure is too high for too long, the delicate nerve in the back of the eye gets damaged. And when it gets damaged, it doesn't cause blurry vision, it causes tunnel vision. So if you go like this, you'll get a sense of what early tunnel vision is like. And if you go like this and cover one eye and look through a little hole between your thumb and forefinger, you get an idea of what bad tunnel vision is like. So even like this, you can still read, still see faces, but you have to find the face. And you can still read letters, but you have to find the word. You can even still read the, the name on the bus or the, or the license plate, but you can't, it takes a long time to scan the whole streetscape to make sure it's safe to cross safely. So glaucoma causes severe vision loss, um, but not from blurry vision, more from tunnel vision. One of the toughest stories about glaucoma is that vision loss from glaucoma is not reversible. We only know how to slow down and stop future progression. So we do that by reducing the eye pressure. And we, of course, this is the exact example of where you want to catch it early. Um, I mentioned to you that the nerve in the back of the eye gets damaged from the pressure. So you can think of an electric cord going to a lamp. And the cord is plugged in. The cord is in 
uh, good, good condition and the lamp is burning bright. Well, you could sit down and take a piece of sandpaper and sandpaper the cord. And for most of the day, you'd probably be sandpapering the rubber insulation around the wire. And then at some point after many hours of sandpapering, you might get through to the electric current that's going through the wire. And after you got through the entire buffer of the electric cord, which is the, that rubber insulation, then the lamp, when you get through the all and you've, you've whittled away and sanded down all the rubber insulation, then the lamp might flicker and go dim. That's similar to what happens in glaucoma. We've learned from studies that as much as 90%, 90, 90% of the optic nerve can be damaged before a person starts to develop tunnel vision. So we want to detect this problem early on before it's, function, before it's causing a functional loss and manage it early on before the nerve is badly damaged when there's still enough nerve function so the person can see well. And indeed, most people who have glaucoma are able to see well their whole life because most people who have glaucoma have it detected early on before vision is lost, when the nerve is still functioning. And uh, this is one of the main reasons why a person needs a regular eye exam. And uh, uh, certainly folks who are at risk of glaucoma, who had a high pressure reading or who have a family member with glaucoma, uh, or who've been told that their optic nerve has an unusual appearance, uh, those folks might need to be seen even more often than once a year. The treatments for glaucoma are many, but they're all the same. They're many because they include eye drops or laser treatments, which are painless and safe and done in the office, or pills or surgery. So there are many different ways that we can treat glaucoma, but they're all the same because what they all have in common is they treat glaucoma by reducing the eye pressure. None of these treatments restore vision. None of these treatments help a person see better or feel better. They, all they do is reduce eye pressure to help the nerve function better going forward into the future. And this is why we want to detect glaucoma early on. I sometimes think of driving from Washington DC to New York City. And let's say I don't really wanna to get to New York City. It's gonna be easier to not get to New York City if I step on the brakes when I'm in Baltimore early on. And if I step on the brakes with both feet, I'm gonna slow the car down even slower. In contrast, if I don't even realize that I'm heading to New York till I'm on the GW bridge or whatever the bridge is up there. Yeah. And uh, I'm in Northern New Jersey and uh, I'm speeding along. Well, then I, it's going to be harder to harder to not get to, to where I don't want to go. So to stay in a healthy place, I don't like that. That maybe that analogy is not so good. New York's a fine place, but if you want to, uh, to maintain good vision in glaucoma, we want to detect it early manage it early, reduce pressure early. And we can often accomplish that with an eye drop or two. 
and sometimes with the laser treatment or pills or surgery. And uh, the goal is to reduce eye pressure so that person holds on to their best vision possible every day going forward their whole life. And we're usually able to achieve that, but it takes a lot of work between patient and doctor together to get there. So that's what I wanted to say about glaucoma. And then to finish up, I wanna talk about two conditions that affect the retina, the back of the eye. And uh, the first of these two conditions is macular degeneration, uh, sometimes called age-related macular degeneration, uh, which comes in two varieties. There's the dry form and the wet form. The wet form involves blood and leaky blood vessels. The dry form does not. In the dry form, there's just a generalized breakdown of the tissue in the center of 20-20 vision in the retina. The macula is the center of the retina. And when we say macular degeneration, we mean that the center of 20-20 vision in the back of the eye is not healthy. It's degenerating. The tissue is breaking down in an unhealthy way. And a person who has dry macular degeneration typically has patchy vision that develops slowly and gradually over time. And uh, they can sometimes be helped uh, with glasses and regular monitoring. And it can progress, but usually this just causes a little bit of central blurring and uh, the side vision remains intact. So this person uh, might need low vision aids to read better, um, special magnifying glasses or lights, uh, but they can usually still cross the street and, and, and function pretty well. Wet macular degeneration is when uh, there, are, as I mentioned, uh, there are leaky blood vessels uh, that bleed into the back of the eye. And this is a, a problem that usually occurs more quickly, uh, more abruptly and causes loss of central vision. Again, side vision is still maintained. These persons are not totally without vision, but they have difficulty reading and recognizing faces. In the course of my career, the treatment of wet macular degeneration has progressed dramatically in a good way. And we have treatments for this, which are very successful in changing wet macular degeneration uh, into a drier condition where a person is able to maintain some useful vision, which is often benefited by low vision aids, such as magnifiers and special lighting. Uh, ways that you can help prevent macular degeneration are by avoiding smoking. Smoking doubles the risk. And there's nothing about secondhand smoke that differs that much from primary smoke. So you really wanna avoid smoking and smoky places. And the other thing that's been shown to help prevent macular degeneration are leafy green vegetables, dark green leafy green vegetables. So uh, eat your spinach, your collard greens and your kale. And it's a small leap to say lots of colorful fruits and vegetables. If you wanna see the colors, eat the colors. And uh, your dinner table should have uh, blueberries and red peppers and orange squash and uh, yellow squash and uh, orange peppers and orange cantaloupe and uh, uh, purple, purple cabbage 
and uh, all kinds of colorful fruits and vegetables cooked and raw and whole and crushed and especially the dark green leafy ones. And that's how you can help prevent macular degeneration. The other retina disease I wanted to talk to you about today, just to wrap up, is diabetic eye disease. Diabetic eye disease also causes leaky blood vessels and swelling in the back of the eye that causes blurry vision. And of course, this, the best way to control diabetic eye disease and to prevent it is to control diabetes by maintaining a healthy blood sugar. And uh, uh, that's the main, main, main thing to do. Uh, but there are some treatments for diabetic eye disease, which uh, involve medicines like macular degeneration medicines that reduce the growth of abnormal blood vessels. Uh, so we do have some treatments for, for diabetic eye disease and macular degeneration. So I just want to review uh, what we talked about, and then I want to take questions. We talked about healthy aging and normal aging. And normal aging involves eyeglasses in front of the eyeball and a dry eye on the surface of the cornea, which can be treated with lubricants and resting the eye and warm compresses and other treatments. And then we talked a lot about cataract, which happens in normal aging, just like gray hair, the lens of the eye goes from clear to gray and about uh, how to manage that and when is appropriate. Again, when is appropriate is when vision is inadequate for the patient's needs, despite the best glasses. That's when cataract surgery should be considered. And then we talked about vitreous floaters, which are also normal and occur in the back of the eye. But when they're new, they can cause flashing lights. And when they're new, you want to get an eye exam promptly. And then we talked about three conditions that are not normal, but are common. Uh, glaucoma, which uh, causes tunnel vision, not blurry vision, but tunnel vision. And is the most, one of the most important reasons to have a regular eye exam because when detected early, it can almost always be managed so a person holds on to good vision their whole life. And then we talked about two problems in the retina, macular degeneration and diabetic eye disease that are also manageable. We talked about how important it is to eat a colorful diet with lots of fruits and vegetables, especially dark green leafy vegetables and to avoid smoking. All right, here we are at noontime and I wanna thank you all for your attention. And I want to open the floor to questions. And um, uh, Sean, are you there? I am, yes. Great. Could you, uh, uh, I don't have a way of identifying folks, but maybe you could call on people and they could ask their question. Or if there are questions in the chat, perhaps you could ask them directly to me. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah. So just a brief uh, review for everyone to unmute yourself. If you're on Zoom on your computer, it's the Alt tab plus A. Um, you can also unmute at the bottom left of your screen. To unmute yourself on your phone, it's star six. So I see someone has unmuted themselves. Uh, the phone number 301 ends in 500. Please go ahead and ask your question. Thank you, my name is Maria. Um, I wanted to find out, by the way, Doctor, that was a wonderful, simple, basic, beautiful explanation of everything you presented. Thank you. Um, I wanted to find out, in the case of glaucoma, 
first of all, what is the baseline to say somebody has glaucoma in terms of the number? Because I see reports that say, oh, we want it to be a pressure of 12, that's the, you know, or less, that's the best. So if somebody who's young, say 25 years old, and they have pressures of 18, 20, fluctuating, sometimes with one device versus another, is that normal? Okay, well, Maria, thank you for asking that great question, Maria. Uh, so what's the number that's healthy for glaucoma? So we talked about the pressure in the eye that's created by the fluid that flows into the eye raises pressure and the fluid that flows out of the eye reduces pressure. And the problem in glaucoma is that the fluid doesn't flow out properly. What's the healthy number? So uh, pressure is measured in units of millimeters of mercury. And uh, that's a, a, an old fashioned measurement, but that's what we use. And a normal pressure is between 10 and 21 units and 10 and 21 millimeters of mercury. And 10 and 21, well, that's just what, if you measure 100 people, 95 of them, that's two standard deviations for you statisticians out there, 95% are gonna have pressure between 10 and 21. So that's what we call the normal range. Now, within any given individual, you have to take a couple of things into consideration. The first is the devices we use to measure pressure uh, are dependent on the cornea, the cornea being a certain thickness. And there's an assumption that's made that the cornea is of average thickness. So if the cornea is a little extra thick, then that raises the pressure measurement incorrectly. And the doctor is misled into thinking the pressure's high. So the first thing that a person, one of the things we do when we uh, detect high pressure is we measure the thickness of the cornea to make sure the pressure measurement is accurate because we wanna make sure it's accurate. If the cornea is thick, the pressure can be overestimated by the doctor. And if the cornea is thin, the pressure can be underestimated. So we next look at the nerve in the back of the eye to determine whether the nerve is healthy because there are some patients whose pressure measures higher than average who have healthy nerves and they're doing just fine and we can live with that. And then there are other patients who have pressure in the normal range and, as many, and because pressure goes up and down during the course of the day and from day to day, as much many as 30% of patients in some studies have normal pressure when they're in the doctor's office, but their pressure might go up at a different time of day. And that might, damage, might be a reason why their nerve might be damaged. So to answer your question, the pressure of 18 to 20, if it's accurate with a normal corneal thickness, that's in the average range of 10 to 21, for patients of any age, including a patient who's 25 years old that you met, that you asked about. Is that a healthy pressure for that patient? If their nerve is healthy, then yes. If their nerve is of questionable occurrence, uh, appearance, then the doctor might have them take a visual field test and they might follow the patient over time to determine if anything changes. It's, uh, it's oftentimes difficult to make the determination or the diagnosis of whether someone has glaucoma or doesn't have glaucoma at one single visit to the office. Because sometimes, as is true in many things in nature, something becomes apparent over time. And what might become apparent is that a person 
has a, a, a high pressure from a thick cornea and a normal eye, a normal nerve, or that they have uh, an abnormal nerve that's very sensitive to pressure, uh, or that they have a pressure that goes up and down. So sometimes it takes more than one visit to a doctor's office to make the determination or the diagnosis of yes, you have glaucoma or no, you don't. And we often call people, we say, look, parts of your exam suggest glaucoma or, or are suspicious for glaucoma. So let's just keep our eye on this or let's treat it preventively. Um, and uh, uh, sometimes doctors differ. Sometimes one doctor will say, gee, I'm more concerned about this. And another doctor will say, you know, I'm not so concerned about this. And over time, things usually become more clear. So sometimes it might take several visits over several years before uh, uh, someone is found to say, look, you, you do have frank glaucoma, let's treat this more aggressively. But mm. the simple answer to the question of is 18 to 21 a normal pressure? Yes, 10 to 21 is the average pressure. And that's normal for a healthy eye with a normal nerve. If the nerve is not normal, then that pressure might be of concern. And uh, you also want to have the corneal thickness measured so you know whether your pressure measurement is accurate or not. Okay, okay. Thank but there's another question. Sean, is there another question in the uh, chat? Yes, my apologies. I was speaking with my uh, phone or my uh, audio muted. Uh, so we have a question. Uh, what caution should a patient with abnormal vision and shape of their eyeball take when considering cataract surgery? Okay, so what what precautions should a person with abnormal eye, eye shape take yep. when having cataract surgery? And, and uh, impaired vision as well. Oh, and impaired vision. So... Uh, Someone who has impaired vision from a problem other than cataract needs to, could still develop cataract and could still benefit from cataract surgery if the cataract is the limiting factor. So here a doctor is going to put a heavy dose of judgment into this determination. Let's say someone has vision that's impaired for, uh, their, for many years and their vision is, I'm gonna make 2050 and uh, and maybe they, they don't drive at night, but they still do some activities and they drive during the day and they are still able to see pretty well for most of their activities. And then over the years, they do, their, their impairment is stable, except that they have a new problem and that's a cataract develops. And they, now they come in and their vision is 2100 and they're not comfortable driving day or night and they can't uh, read as well as they used to. Well, that sounds like a patient and the doctor examines their eye and sees that they've developed a cataract and their other visual impairment, whether it's macular degeneration or uh, diabetes or dry eye, uh, their other problem is stable and does not explain the deter deterioration of their vision, but cataract has developed and that does explain it. Then the doctor would try to improve the vision with glasses. And if they fail because glasses don't help, then that's a person who could benefit greatly from cataract from cataract surgery. And I've had some very happy patients who had very bad macular degeneration, who did not read the chart any better after cataract surgery because their macular degeneration had taken away their ability to read the chart, but their side vision improved dramatically. And they said, oh, I can see so much brighter 
And the part of my eye that does work works better after cataract surgery. So uh, someone who has a visual impairment can still develop cataract and can still benefit from cataract surgery. But that requires uh, an extra dose of judgment by the doctor because I have other patients who sadly have a visual impairment that limits their vision so profoundly that even the development of cataract, big cataracts, doesn't make a difference in their vision. And I counsel those patients not to have cataract surgery because it may not help, because it may not help them. Um, some patients uh, go ahead with cataract surgery anyway because the cataract, the cataract, when it's profound, impairs not only the patient's view out into the world, but it can impair the doctor's view into the eye. And sometimes these visual impairments are in the back of the eye behind the lens. So a doctor looking in the eye can't see through the cloudy lens and can't manage the problem in the back of the eye. So this is an unusual alternative reason for cataract surgery. And that's so that the doctor can see into the eye. And uh, sometimes we doctors are surprised and a person who we say, look, I don't know that you see any better. Sometimes they see a little bit better and that's a wonderful surprise for everybody. So uh, what precautions should a patient take when they have another visual impairment? They should take all the same precautions as any other patient. They should only have cataract surgery when their vision is inadequate for their needs, despite the best possible glasses. And they should uh, have an, maybe an extra discussion with their doctor because their doctor's judgment of what portion of their blurred vision is contributed by the cataract as opposed to their longstanding visual impairment, uh, that would play a role in the decision of whether to go ahead with cataract surgery and when to go ahead with cataract surgery. Thank you. Uh, I see we have, Judy is unmuted. Judy, do you have a question? Yes, I do. Uh, I'm a, an advanced glaucoma patient and I am monitoring with a tonometer, but uh, my pressure has never been high. It's always been around 12 or 14 or 15. And I've been on drops for 25 years or more, um, all kinds. I've had trabs in both eyes. I've had cataracts removed. And in the last year or so, my vision has gotten worse, more dramatically worse. It's harder to read. Um, it takes quite a while to, you know, get focused and stay focused on something. Uh, I don't know what's left. I've never taken any pills. I've always had drops. Um, I don't know whether that would make any difference or not if there's pills, you know, also um, uh, since I am older, I'm having a little difficulty remembering to take my drops. I usually take them, but sometimes it's late. I'm taking quite a few. I'm taking Zydra for dry eyes and I'm taking um, several other drops. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, Judy, I understand that you have a lot of, you've had a lot of challenges with your eyes. And this type of specific question about your particular case is one that really merits an examination in the office with a doctor. And I think the most important advice I can give you 
is that you should have a doctor who you feel comfortable talking with, with whom you have great confidence that they're doing the best they can for you. And that you, uh, you and your doctor both not hesitate to get additional opinions because no one of us knows everything. Uh, and uh, even doctors can learn from other doctors. And um, uh, your, your situation does merit um, uh, being sure that you have a good relationship with your doctor and that you can ask your doctor all these questions and that your doctor can give you a thorough exam and personalize the answer to your very specific condition. Um, and that would be true of anybody who asks a specific question on a forum like this. So I can answer in general that um, uh, pills are usually not used long-term because they have side effects that are usually not well tolerated long-term. You've already had surgery for glaucoma, which is uh, uh, sort of uh, can, can take the place of pills for many patients. And um, uh, uh, the fact that your glaucoma has gotten worse is uh, in the last, or that your vision's gotten worse in the last year. What you want to know is why is that? And that's a good question for you to ask your doctor. And sometimes, uh, so glaucoma does get worse over time. That is part of the diagnosis of glaucoma. It gets worse over time. The goal of treatment is to slow the rate of progression right. to the slowest possible rate so that a person holds on to the most vision possible every day going forward, every day their whole life. And that's, that's the realistic goal. And um, uh, maybe in the future, we'll have ways to reverse vision loss from glaucoma. We don't have that now. There are people a lot smarter than me doing research on that question. And hopefully some, they'll come up with something good soon. Uh, but meantime, uh, you need to ask that question of your doctor. And um, if it's something that you're not comfortable asking your doctor, then you, you, you need another doctor. I mean, you need to be able to talk, to talk to your doctor and ask questions like that and tell your doctor that you don't feel that you're getting worse. And you need to have confidence in your doctor's answer. Yeah. I'm yes. sorry if I wasn't able to answer you more specifically, but that's the uh, limitations of this type of forum. The answer seems to be uh, when you have advanced glaucoma. That doesn't sound like a good answer. It doesn't sound like it's going anywhere. Well, you do want to make sure that nothing else is going on. And that's what your doctor would tell you or not tell you. And uh, you mentioned that your pressure is 12 to 14, I believe. Uh, that, you know, that pressure may not be low enough for you and maybe you need additional treatment. And maybe your doctor will make the judgment that additional treatment is uh, not in your best interest because um, uh, the risk may be more than the benefit. That's, that's a discussion that your doctor needs to make after examining you. Okay, thank you. All right, any other questions, folks? Uh, we still have just a couple more minutes. Uh, again, to unmute yourself, you can press Alt-A or at the bottom left of your screen on your phone, it's star six. Yes, go ahead. Sorry, I decided to follow up on the previ previous question of the glaucoma doctor. Um, so this person sees his optometrist every 
other year or so, sometimes maybe yearly, but I would say on the average every other year. Does this person with this numbers of upper average part uh, should be followed by the ophthalmologist or is with all due respect optometrist uh, is still a good follow-up? Thank you for asking the question, Maria, and thank you for coming back and asking the question. I really appreciate you this very much. So uh, in the greater Washington area, we're blessed with many good eye doctors. Mm -hmm. uh, eye doctors or eye specialists come in different, uh, with different, uh, different backgrounds. Uh, one tradition is the optometrist. Optometrics is the measurement, metrics. Optometrics is the measurement of the eye. And optometrics involves the measurement of the eye, which is basically eyeglasses, contact lenses, and that's their traditional training. In recent decades, optometrists have uh, expanded their area of interest into some eye diseases, and uh, including uh, pressure checking for glaucoma. Uh, I'm old enough to know that I went to an optometrist who used an air puff machine to check my eye pressure because the air puff machine did not touch my eye because optometrists had not, um, uh, did not have privileges, uh, medical privileges uh, given by the state to put medicines on the eye to numb the surface of the eye. Uh, optometrists go to uh, four years of optometry school after college. And, uh, uh, and many of them can do a good eye exam and good, excellent eyeglasses and contact lenses. And many of them can detect, detect uh, medical problems too. In contrast, ophthalmologists are medical doctors who go to four years of college, four years of medical school, and then typically uh, three to five years of training after medical school in, ophthalmolo in ophthalmology, which is the medicine and surgery of the eye. And uh, so most so obviously I'm, I'm, I'm an MD, I'm a physician and surgeon of the eye. And many optometrists do choose to send their patients with glaucoma or who they think might have glaucoma or who they're not sure whether they or not they have glaucoma. They will send them to me for my opinion. Um, the person whom you've told me about uh, has chosen to go to an optometrist. Many optometrists are very good. Um, but if the person you told me about is unsure about their glaucoma status, uh, it's possible that they would be reassured by going to an MD ophthalmologist. And uh, uh, it certainly sounds like that would be a reasonable visit, especially if they have health insurance that covers the visit to uh, a doctor, which is uh, often the case. Um, a person goes going to uh, some insurance companies do not cover visits to optometrists unless you have a vision service plan. Uh, this is different going to an ophthalmologist. It's part of your medical health care. Um, finally, an interesting, I, th I think this is a real kind of neat historic tidbit. Optometrists and ophthalmologists come from different backgrounds. So ophthalmologists come from the medical tradition. And interesting, in the Middle Ages, someone figured out that you could put on eyeglasses and see better. Someone ground a lens and realized that you saw better. And some medical doctors thought this was like a crutch and that a person would become dependent on the eyeglass. 
So there was a period where medical doctors didn't like using, I mean, I'm talking hundreds of years ago, didn't like to use eyeglasses. But eyeglasses worked great, right? So there was another mm-hmm. bunch of folks who were jewelers and worked very well with their hands and with fine jewelry and fine metals. And they learned how to grind lenses. And that's the root of the optomet- optometric tradition. Yeah. So uh, that's just a little history for today. But again, there are many fine optometrists in Washington who do an excellent job screening for glaucoma um, and maybe even managing mild glaucoma. And I guess if they do much more than that, I don't know about it, but I know about the optometrists who screen for glaucoma. And if they detect the patient with high pressure or an unusual appearing nerve, they might send the patient to me for an opinion about whether or not this person has glaucoma. I allow the optometrist to continue to take care of this person's glasses and general eye care, but I uh, manage their glaucoma uh, if they have it. Or quite commonly, I reassure the patient, you know, I think you're in good shape. Visit your optometrist every year. Come back and see me if you have concerns or if your optometrist has concerns, I'm happy to monitor you for the development of glaucoma. So uh, it's not necessarily an either or thing. You can have an optometrist and an ophthalmologist and each can have their defined roles. Um, have I answered your question, Maria? Yes, you did, Doctor. Thank you very much. Thank you for asking that question and giving me a chance to answer it. I appreciate it. It sounds like that's most of the questions, Sean. It does. I'm going to give everyone seven more seconds to unmute themselves if they have a question. Well, I want to thank everybody once again for joining me today. It's been a great pleasure. And uh, you're a wonderful audience. You asked great questions. And I wish you all a lifetime of healthy, good vision and comfortable eyes and uh, healthy aging and healthy aging and good eyes. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Weiss. And thank you, everyone, for participating today. We'll be able to find a recording of the audio of this presentation later this week on our website, youreyes.org. Um, Dr. Weiss, if somebody wants to uh, get in contact or perhaps have you be your, their doctor, who can they call? Uh, they can call uh, Washington Eye, which is my practice, and uh, we're listed in the phone book. Uh, it's a simple number, 301-657-5700. We have one office in Chevy Chase. and. Uh, uh, I have some wonderful colleagues who might have a little more availability than I, um, and uh, uh, I will tell you that without exception, the doctors in our office are all superstars. They're all highly trained. They all trained uh, more than the minimal training, and they're all seasoned, experienced, excellent physicians, and I'd let any of them take care of me. All right. Thank you, Dr. Weiss. Okay, everyone. Everyone.